Uh, Taylor, I sent you a, a Google Calendar invite earlier. Did you did you get that? I didn't see your email. Yeah, didn't I send you a thumbs up? Let me check. Uh, maybe I didn't notice because you sent a brown emoji. I don't understand why you sent me a brown thumbs up on on the email. It's just a thumbs up emoji. It's just what's in my phone. What's the big deal? You're it's a skin not. Tone. You're not. It's not your skin tone, Taylor. You're not brown. Okay, I know I lost my tan. I mean, this it's the summer's been it's coming back soon, so I'll basically be darker very soon anyways. I mean, this is like you don't have to make <laughs> fun of my skin just cuz I'm I white. just it, it, do you know what you know what you're really doing in doing that? It's like you have this white privilege, right? And you get to hide that white privilege when you send me an emoji that's brown. You're not a brown person. So so how is it that you get to hide your whiteness through email and through text and I don't get to see what color you are? I will try to keep my emojis updated with my skin tone that changes with the seasons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The next emoji you send me better be white or I'm going to HR. I will pick the whitest possible one for you. <laughs> Should I just do yellow? Would that be, make you happy? No. What's wrong with yellow? Uh, first of all, stop Asian hate. Secondly, it's it's completely unacceptable to to any of our, our, our Southeast Asian uh, people at this, uh, this company. Send a white emoji. You're white. Got it. Why can't we have like gray emojis, <laughs> colorless, translucent emojis? I don't know. Your racism is really showing, Taylor. You're, um, you're oddly too good at that. I think lot. you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining us on Will and Elmo Live. That is our opening scene. And it's not, you know, we're not making this stuff up. I, I no longer make stuff up for this because it's this is just too real. There's too much actual real comedy happening right before our eyes that people don't people don't realize uh, should be seen as comedy. Here's a story out of NPR. You know NPR? I used to turn on NPR, uh, you know, in the in the car, and I listened to it when I was a kid driving with my mom, and they used to do stories on, like, here's a volcano out in India that hasn't erupted in 200 years or something like that, you know? Yeah, here's a, here's a beekeeper from Tibet who's, uh, you know, has a very interesting life and picks some special flowers. And right, like, right. Here's like a group a group of monks that use frogs, frog spit as hallucinogenics. That's what NPR used to report on. That's what I used to hear from NPR. It used to be interesting. I used to click it on if I wanted to just, if I was just curious about something. Now NPR has put out an article and here's the, here's the headline. It's an article on race. It says, which skin color emoji should you use? The answer can be more complex than you think. And we start off by showing the different thumbs up, you know, as we as we insinuated in our skit. And he talks about this person by the name of Heath Rosella. So Heath Rosella identifies as three quarters white and one quarter Filipino. When texting, he chooses a yellow emoji instead of a skin tone option because he feels it doesn't. Uh, represent any specific ethnicity or color. He doesn't want people to view his text in a particular way. He wants to go with what he sees as a neutral option and focus on the message. Now, Heath is quoted as saying, I present as very pale, very light-skinned, and if I use the white emoji, I feel like I'm betraying the part of myself that's Filipino. But if I use a darker color emoji, which may more closely match what I see when I look at my whole family, it's not what the world sees, and people tend to judge that. Be, uh, so they go on to write an entire article about what emojis you should use. Is it appropriation to use an emoji that's darker than you? Is it hiding your whiteness if you're a white person who chooses a different color emoji? And I just can't believe that somebody is getting paid to write this. And three people. It took three journalists, quote unquote journalists at NPR 
to write this article and put it all together to, you know, launch a full investigation until we can figure out what the heck is going on with emojis. Right, right, right. Find the racism. It's like that's what this new racist lens that you have to see the world through. You just find it everywhere. Ibram Kendi says it's not a question of when did racism occur, it's where did racism occur, and that is exactly what these people are doing with this worldview. And it's it's sad because it's at the expense of the authentic journalism and high quality journalism that they used to do. Right. It's just it's so simply ridiculous. And if you're looking for race, you're going to find it. And people always have these discussions about this. And it's going to infiltrate every single part of our society if it hasn't already. Which, judging by this article, it seems that it has already. If we're talking about racist emojis, we've gone way too far down the rabbit hole. Now, I had the pleasure of being on the Ingram Angle last night to talk about this exactly. And just race as it pertains to leftism in general. And here's a small clip from that. Amala, the left is racializing everyday activities. I mean, everything is racist. Uh, it seems like it sometimes. Even picking an emoji, according to NPR, Jennifer Epperson from Houston identifies as black and said she changed her approach depending on who she was talking to. I use the default emoji, the yellow-toned one for professional settings. Then I use the dark brown emoji for friends and family. I just don't have the emotional capacity to unpack race relations in the professional setting. Amala, it's you think of the Underground Railroad and you think of Rosa Parks and now we're at emojis. Right. Wow. It, it's it's completely ridiculous. And when you view the world through the lens of racism, you will find it everywhere. It's how I used to view the world. And every cross look and every color emoji uh, was had racism in it. And that's how they operate. And we really have to deviate from that because it's a disservice to everybody who learns this sort of ideology. There are young children now being taught in school that their race matters more than who they are as an individual, what their interests are, what their dislikes are, their merit, their character. And if we continue on this route, we're going to have a generation that is completely crippled by this narrative. Who cares what color your emojis are? And you should question anybody who looks at you and tries to convince you of your own victimhood. And you should ask, what do they get from me being convinced of this? And when you've answered that question, you'll find that you should not be on their side. Yeah, how much do they make? There we are. And that's all you have to say about it. It's so clear and simple. I, I, I I'm hesitant to even cover a story about racist emojis because my simple answer and my simple response to it is, who cares? <laughs> who cares? And when we give it attention like this, it makes it look like people should care about it and it should be a discussion. It simply should be ignored. It really should. Articles like this should be ignored. Yeah. <laughs> and here we are talking about it. And here we are talking about it. But we have to talk about how ridiculous it we is. We really do have to point out how ridiculous it is because there are people who are going to take NPR and go, this is credible. This is a credible news source. I want to hear about what they think about emojis. And then they're going to morph their lifestyle to fit the narrative that is supported by NPR, which again is national public radio. How is what this is what public radio is talking to you about? Amazing. And that's all I have to say. Who cares what emojis you use? And if you don't care, what skin color emoji you should use, put them all down below in the comments and do that on the Will and Amla Live channel. That's Will and Amla Live on YouTube, our new channel just for you guys. We're posting clips, exclusive contents, our full episodes are going to go on that channel as well. So go comment every single color emoji that you can. And let's really get uh, the people at NPR writhing in pain over this. It's simply ridiculous. <laughs>
Now, wait, real quick. We yes. got a one great job where everyone's super proud of you for your appearance Aww. there. You did, you knocked it out of the park. Thanks, guys. Casually stealing America's heart on, <laughs> on Wednesday night. Um, but secondly, how about that Will and Amla Live logo on Fox News seen by millions of people? Hey, isn't Check that it. pretty uh, cool? So and I'm going to be. You guys watching, we're, you're kind of a big deal. You guys now. are kind of a big deal. Well, and I'm alive has been featured on Fox News, and it's going to get featured again on Fox News on Friday when I'm on Waters World. So, hey. guys, hype up the channel, subscribe if you want to keep seeing Marvel and Amala on Fox News. Fantastic. Now, uh, another piece of controversy has been Joe Rogan and his commentary and his uh, use of the N-word. I didn't want to discuss this alone on the show, so I brought on a guest by the name of Amir Odom. You guys have met him on the show before, but if you haven't, let's meet Amir. Now, if you guys have been on social media or watching the news, you've heard the name Joe Rogan probably a thousand times by now. He's coming under the heat of the woke left, and they want his podcast taken off of Spotify, the Joe Rogan experience. Now, the most recent attack against Joe Rogan has been a video compilation of him saying the N-word, except every time he says it, he's quoting someone else. Does that context matter? Does it matter if white people say the N-word? Should everybody be offended by the use of the N-word? These are all great questions, and we have a guest on the show today by the name of Amir Odom. You know him from his fantastic Instagram and social media. Plus, he's a great friend of PragerU and PragerForce. Amir put out uh, a post on Instagram saying, here's why some black people don't have a problem with the N-word. And now we've brought him on to talk about that. Amir, thank you for being on. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Of course, of course. So let's jump right into this. You heard the, the Joe Rogan controversy. You heard this video of him saying the N-word. What was your initial reaction to it? It just flew over my head. Like um, when I heard him saying it, I've been watching his podcast for forever. It's always been in context. So one, I didn't care then. Two, personally, I don't care about the word. I'm not gonna let a word let a word have agency over me. So mm-hmm. it, I just don't care about it. And when I saw this hype around it and everyone really caring and being angry about it, I'm just sitting here like, we hear it in every top forty rap song. So what's the problem in context? So yeah, it was just absurd. So I had to put this graphic out to really lay down the law and give another black perspective of this word. Right. I mean, I've I had the same reaction. I hear that, and you you see all these people, and it's funny. I don't like to play the race card, but typically a lot of white woke leftists coming out and saying, "How dare you say the n word? You need to be canceled for this." And then black people are just sitting on the other end, going, "Okay." I mean, I don't really care here. So it's it's insane to me that you even have to write into words why somebody wouldn't be offended by the N-word. But you did it uh, graciously and you put it on the Internet. Let's go into reason number one for here's why some black people don't have a problem with the N-word. Number one is they believe that context matters. Let's let's dive into that and, and sort of explain what you meant by that. Yeah. So context really matters when it comes to this word. When it comes to the N-word, of course, we understand that there's a historical background to it. Um, But in the last, I want to say 20 years, that's definitely changed. I think we saw a big shift with the song, My N-Word, My N-Word, that was Mm -hmm. popular in 2010s. It effectively erased its history. And now whenever someone's using the word, they're using it just to refer to their friend or using it because it's a lyric in a rap song. And so this idea that this word is very taboo and you can't say it, but it's a common component of English English slang, it makes no sense to me. 
Right. I completely agree with you. I think in so many conversations that we get into around language and language policing, context does not matter for woke leftists. You saw with the the Dave Chappelle uh, comedy special. I don't know if you watched it, but they came after him. Yeah, they came after him about all these transgender jokes. And if you really watched and watched it in context, you would see that he really loved the transgender community, but they don't care. So long as the words leave your mouth, they come at your throat. It's so crazy. Precisely. It's absurd, especially with the Dave Chappelle scenario. He was talking about his trans friend. But of course, that trans friend's voice does not matter because it doesn't fit the narrative. The same way they say our voice doesn't matter, even right, though we're black. Exactly. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter because they're not saying what they want us to say. Gotcha. Right. You're, you're completely right. And that's how it plays in the N-word. And like I said, with these Joe Rogan clips, most of it was just him saying it, quoting somebody else and how you can get canceled for that or have, you know, the, the media and have all these crazy people come after you on the Internet for that is, is just beyond me. You go on to give another reason. Uh, you give several reasons why uh, some people are not offended by the N-word. Here's another one. They do not allow themselves to be emotionally manipulated by a word. And this one is so important. Because we talk so much about taking back the N-word, and that's the argument that the left uses for why it's so often in rap songs. What did you mean by not being emotionally manipulated by this word? It's 2022. (laughs) There are far more pressing things to be worried about than if someone says the N-word. Like, I'm just too grown for that. I don't care what anyone calls me. I get hate every day. We get death threats all day. I do not care i'm not going to lend that power to someone else by a word i'm too strong to allow a word to control my emotions and my life i would never let that happen and i'll never let someone else have that power over me if one's life is controlled by the use of a word that you're weak at that point like i'm not sorry you're just weak if you allow someone saying the n-word to really emotionally affect you and quick story um y'all know i'm a little i am gay and back in (laughs) high school um this guy he was like hey amir you're an f-word and i was just like okay and everyone thought like oh man are you gonna fight him like what's going on and i'm like he has bigger demons to battle if he's out here calling me an f-word i don't care i don't know him I'm not going to let sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I do not care. Right. If this is the worst thing that you hear and, and this is the thing that really gets you emotionally unsettled, there's a bigger problem on, on your part, I think. And I went through a very similar experience in school. You know, I was called an Oreo for being half black, half white. Some kids called me the N word, all this different stuff. And if you allow that to phase you, if that's what truly gets you going to where you have to dedicate your life to this word not being said, there's something wrong. There really is. And there, it's, it is really weakness. And it's, it's you know, you got to say it. it it's true. <laughs> Now, you put out another reason here. They believe that you can't police speech. And this is another reason why people do not have a problem with the N-word. And I'm, I'm totally with you on that. You can't compel what people say. And, and right now, we are sort of getting rid of free speech in this country because people want to take away things that offend them. Who gets to decide what's hurtful? Who gets to decide what's offensive? It's great. All last year, all of 2021, I was demonetized on Instagram for being racist and homophobic. I'm blacker than 11.59 p.m. and I'm gay. In what world can this really be a reality? And that's why, like, who polices this speech? I feel like I have a right to talk about black and gay issues, you would think. 
but right. they're not saying what they want me to say. I don't. And again, free speech means free speech. Can speech be hateful? Yeah. But that's the price we pay for free speech. They're going to say mean things, and that's okay because it ensures the right that everyone can say something. Like, it, free, free speech is inevitable in a free society. Like, people are going to say whatever they want to say. That, that's, that's just what happens. But the mm-hmm. advantages of free speech far outweigh the obstacles that come with it. And I'm willing to defend someone, even if it's in, out of spite, to call me the N-word, to call me the F-word. You have that right. I don't care right. about you. Is it mean? Yeah. But I, you have that right to do what you want to do. So I, yep. I, I don't believe we can just go out here and police speech. And again, I think it's another sign of the weakness if, if you feel the need to silence somebody simply because they offend you. And it's so interesting that it's not a two-way street on that one. We don't get to silence people who offend us. Not that we ever would. And it's interesting that when, when I talk about free speech, I say, you know what? I'm fighting for your freedom of speech as well. I'm fighting for you to be able to call me an Uncle Tom and a coon on social media. That's what I'm fighting, fighting for. Yes. <laughs> and, and it just goes over the head every single time. Every time. Every time. Now, one more here. Uh, let's see. They're against hypocrisy. And, and this is a big one because you brought up sort of rap music and black culture and that use of the N-word. Can you point out to people who may not see it what the hypocrisy really is there? I'll tell you this. More people get upset by a white man saying the N-word than, I don't know, more children being shot and killed in Chicago than all of the kids who have died of COVID. Mm-hmm. I'm over it. It's hypocrisy. You mean to tell me y'all are this butthurt over a word, but and you're using your voice to raise awareness over, oh, they can't say this N-word. Oh, it's hurting my feelings, but not the real issues affecting Black America? Cool. It's hypocrisy. Like, why is it completely acceptable for Black people to say the N-word all day long and refer to each other as the N-word but then if another race says it, it's all of a sudden a problem. But I also thought it was a bad word. If it's a bad word, it's a bad word. Then don't say it. But don't sit here right. and call your homie the N-word, then get mad when someone else does. It doesn't make any sense. It's inconsistent. Yeah, you're quite literally setting an example for what other people should say. If you don't want the word said, do not say the word. And if they think that this is really a campaign to end racism in America, they're completely wrong. And they're not doing anything for black people in this fight. They're not doing anything for people of color in this fight. And it's just amazing to me that so many of the campaigns on the left are are so focused around racism and, and combating it and fighting white supremacy. And it does nothing. It does nothing for our communities. It does nothing to help us. It's just simple talk, and and they don't they don't walk like they talk either. They're out here saying the n word every single day. Oh my they gosh, it it's all amazing! Day, every day, all right. day, every day, and 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 I'm just over the topic. Like I don't understand <laughs> how people can be so hurt by this n word, but they say it all day long, and it's in, in the music. It reminds me of I don't know if it was like 2014, 2013, or even 16. Regardless. When Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar invited that girl on stage to rap his song, and right. then she said the N word, and he got a problem with it, and he had the whole stadium like berate her. And it's like, bro, it's in your lyrics. You're just singing a song. There's a difference between your biggest fan, her dream fulfilled to be on stage with you rapping and saying the N word, than the me busting out a whip. Like, there's a right. difference. It, right. And context matters in that, and they just don't care about the oh white people can never say it 
Yeah, I when I saw that clip, when I saw that clip, it blow it blew my mind. You invite a white girl on stage at your rap concert. She says the N word to your song, and then you stop the track. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. And they expect her to just sit there and, you know, maybe she covers her mouth for it or she, you know, bows down to the black people in this audience. It's what do you expect when you do something like this? Amir, I want to just admire you for taking the time to actually write this out and explain it, even though it should be obvious why some of us are okay and not offended by this. Do you have any final thoughts for sort of the maybe the woke leftists who are still going to continue to come after Joe Rogan after this? I think it's time to really look inside and look in the mirror at what's really affecting your life. Why are you so hurt? Mm-hmm. Why like look in the mirror and do some internal thinking and really think, why does this word make you so angry? Especially the woke white people. I've had more white people tell me I can't say the word than black people. Right. So what what makes you feel like you, you can really dictate who can say what? And I would just really really want you to look inside and see what is the issue going on and why do I really have a problem with this word? And I want you to take into account all the black people that don't have a problem with the word and look at the other side and just listen. You don't have to agree, but just listen, seek out new perspectives and come up with your own solution instead of allowing Twitter, CNN to run your life headline after headline amazing advice and those are some questions we should all be asking ourselves and we should all go home and think about today and then you can get back to me on will and i'm alive uh, amir how can people support you and follow you yes they can go on instagram amir x odom a-m-i-r-x-o-d-o-m um you can just google search amir odom a-m-i-r-o-d-o-m the first thing that'll pop up is my stories of us episode on prayer you um so yeah that'll be the best place for you to find me on instagram Awesome. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much uh, for coming on and explaining something that should be so simple. We appreciate it. (laughs) You would think. No problem. (laughs) And that is our fantastic friend, Amir. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. He's been on previous episodes. And if you want to search those up, you can go to PragerU, uh, our PragerU YouTube, and check those out. He's always a fantastic guest. Now I want to get into a story that really, really just rubbed me the wrong way this morning. Taylor sent this over through Twitter. Uh, it's an article on Abigail Schreier's sub- Stubstack. Uh, you guys know Abigail Schreier from her book, Irreversible Damage, talking about transgender ideology, uh, puberty blockers, sex hormone therapy, and sex reassignment surgery, particularly as it t- pertains to young people and the irreversible damage that comes along with it. Now she has an article titled Child Custody's Gender Gauntlet. Again, please go and look this up on Abigail Schreier's Substack. It is quite quite a long and lengthy article. So I'm going to try to describe it in in the best way that I can. It's the story of a man by the name of Ted Hudako. Uh, and Ted Hudako has been brought through the ringer here. Essentially what happened is uh, Ted was married to a woman by the name of Christine. Christine was a successful executive at BlackRock. I believe she still is. Ted, a software engineer at Apple. Uh, while away on some family matters, some personal family matters, Christine left with her two sons. And this was in June and July of 2019. She left for the East Coast while Ted uh, was on the West Coast in California. She returned back and in August of that same year, 2019, let Ted know that A, they were going to be getting a divorce and B, that his son Drew uh, was transgender. 
And I believe Drew was 15 at this time, uh, 15 or 16 at this time. So as you can imagine, this came as quite a shock to Ted, who had always known his son Drew as being a biological male and a male identifying person. But now gets the message from his wife that not only are they getting divorced, but his son is a girl. Uh, as you can imagine, Ted was not very uh, excited. He didn't have a high propensity to go and have his son be transitioned and go through uh, not only human hum puberty blocking, uh, but sex reassignment therapy and sex reassignment surgery. Christine was unhappy with this decision, and thus it was brought to court. Now, I want to go through some of what was what was said here. Uh, I'll go through the court proceedings and, and, and in a little bit. But what happened initially is that Ted was brought to be interviewed by a, a specialist in minor counseling. And I want to find his specific name here. Just a moment, you all. Daniel Harkins. So Daniel Harkins came and interviewed Ted, Christina, his two sons, and uh, Drew's psychiatrist in, in this case. And Ted brought forth evidence from a doctor by the name of, let's see, let me find his name. I want everything to be accurate here. Ken Zucker. Ken Zucker is known for studying uh, transgender uh, ideology, transgender theory, as well as the medical practice and the medical treatments for uh, people who suffer from gender dysphoria, even though we're not supposed to call it gender dysphoria anymore. Ken Zucker found that 70% of minors who identify as transgender or experience body dysmorphia eventually outgrow this condition and outgrow this mindset. Now, Ted brought that information to Daniel Harkins. Daniel Harkins, this minor counselor, refused to listen to Ted, labeled him as a parent with poor fathering skills, told him he had little knowledge of gender identity and gender theory, and said that he would was going to cause harm to his son, Drew. What this resulted in was Christine getting full legal custody over Drew. She was able to make all of his medical decisions, and she only had to tell Ted about those medical decisions at her own discretion. She got to be the decider in all factors here. Now, the story gets even deeper because uh, Daniel Harkins is not the only one who can make this decision. It goes to a court. And in this case, it went to the California Superior Court judge by the name of Joni Hiramoto. Now, here's where I want to read through some of the court proceedings and what Ted was subjected to in questioning when it came to, again, his own son and his son's medical treatment. So here's what uh, the, the judge asks. This is Judge Hiramato. If your son Drew were medically psychotic and believed himself to be the Queen of England, would you still love him? Of course I would, replied Ted. I'd also try to get him help. The judge replied, I understand that qualifier. But if it were, if you were told by Drew's psychiatrist, psychologist, that Drew was very fragile and that confronting him, or I'm sorry, confronting them, with the idea that they are not the Queen of England is very harmful to their mental health. Could you go along and say, okay, Drew, you are the Queen of England and I love you. You are my child and I want you to do great and please continue to see your psychologist. Could you do that? The judge asked Ted. Ted responded, yes, that sounds like part of a process that might take some time. Sure. The judge responded, what process? What is the thing that might take some time? Accepting the idea that Drew occupies an identity that you believe is not true? Ted responds, the identity that you just mentioned to me was the Queen of England. 
I can tell him and I can affirm that to him to reassure him uh, situationally. But objectively, he is not the Queen of England and that won't change. And even the therapist in that case would know that. I just cannot believe that this is the line of questioning in deciding whether or not your son gets to be a girl, which is medically irreversible. Yeah. In court by a judge, like the representing the law who has who has, as far as the state is concerned, final say of whether you get custody of your child. Yes. And they're making this comparison. And the whole thing is it, it doesn't even make sense because the purpose of having if your kid identifies as the Queen of England or something, the purpose of putting them in therapy would be to accept to put them on the path of coming back to reality and get out of that. Mm-hmm. But she flipped it around and made it about putting you on the path of accepting his truth. And that's, it's a, it's a uh, inversion that's clear as day. Yep. And yet she's using that rationale as the basis to take his kids away from him. That's madness. And the story gets worse, ladies and gentlemen. And you might think, how could it possibly get worse? Let me explain to you. So not only was Christine granted full custody of this child and given the, the, honestly the deciding factor in whether or not he got medical treatment but it was stipulated in the court proceedings that drew was unable to go through any sort of medical surgery that had to do with his gender identity until he was 18. now drew was 16 at the time of this decision so uh one day ted wakes up he's going about his business and he gets a bill from his insurance company and the bill from his insurance company is for around two hundred and ten thousand dollars charged through his insurance and ted goes what was this done for how why why is there 200k uh being billed to my insurance come to find out christine allowed drew their 16 year old son to put a puberty blocker implant in his arm and has already started cross-sex hormone therapy on his son even though it was stipulated she could not do so until they were 18 and if she wanted to do so before she had to get ted's permission and you think it stops there. Ted contacted Christine's lawyers, his lawyers, and alerted them to the fact that she had gone through with a medical surgery before Drew turned 18. And what did Ted get in return? Nothing, except a restraining order placed against him. So he can no longer see his son, he can no longer see his wife, and I'm sure he can no longer see his other child. He got a restraining order placed after Christina violated this. Now I know what you're thinking somebody's got to step in here and somebody's got to make it better. No, the judge in this case, Judge Hiramato, stood by this decision. And what was not shared during any of the court proceedings, during any of the child custody battle, is this. And finally, the court also felt that Ted had no right to know that Judge Hiramoto had a transgender child of her own whose gender transition she had publicly supported. So the judge in this case, who was deciding whether or not Ted got a say in whether or not his his kid got gender reaffirming surgery or whether or not he even had custody of his child, had a transgender child of her own that she was constantly posting about on social media using hashtags like trans visibility uh, and uh, transgender children and things like that, posting the affirmation of her own child. Now, not only is it unethical to not share that, but it's something you should disclose uh, by virtue of it being a conflict of interest in your judgment in this case. So now Ted has gone through all of this. He's lost custody. His child has gotten an implant placed. He has a restraining order placed against him. And finally, he's back in court. And this is the most recent update here. He's back in court 
to fight the restraining order against him. And he's been placed with a new judge by the name of Benjamin Reyes II. And here's the last line of this article. According to several witnesses, Judge Reyes commenced proceedings by stating his pronouns. So that's the story of Ted Hodako. It's, it's heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching to... You You can feel when you go and read this article, and I really, really do urge you to go read it, you can feel the hopelessness here. You can feel a man that has a system completely pitted against him in the decisions regarding his son's livelihood. And again, this is irreversible. At a certain point of getting puberty blockers, especially with the implant in the arm, your son will be sterilized. He will no longer be able to go back to his old biological self and to produce children because of what has been done here. And again, 70% of young people who experience this gender dysphoria and think they are transgender outgrow this, but he will not have the choice to outgrow it. Right. And this is why it's, this is serious. And this is where the rubber really meets the road with this stuff is like, we do TikTok Tuesday and react to all these woke blue haired liberals who are leftist, woke leftists who say all kinds of crazy stuff about gender ideology and stuff. But this is that stuff, that mm-hmm. ideology taken to its logical conclusion and encoded into law. And you, this is a situation where judges have become possessed by this ideology and they are now activists for this ideology in using their position as a judge to administer justice. They're abdicating their responsibility to administer justice, which is supposed to be about truth. It's mm-hmm. supposed to be about reality and take place in the realm of reality. And instead, this is closer to uh, a religion and you're enforcing this ideology um, in your rulings and yep. in, in law. And that is a, a fundamental brokenness uh, and a departure from what just the purpose of having a court system and legal system is all about. So this isn't about some blue haired liberal on TikTok. This is real. And this father is losing his ability to have access to his child and parent his child because of this woke nonsense. And this kid will have irreversible damage, as uh, Abigail Schreier's book is aptly named. Um, They will have irreversible damage to not only psychologically, but literally will not be able to have children if, if this turns out to be something that he doesn't commit to long term, which, as we know, uh, the the mainstream media likes to hide this. But there's so many stories of detransitioning. It's a whole movement on Reddit and, and on social media. You can read about it. And and so many people uh, recognize that this is a phase later on and, and have regret. And it just it just uh, amplifies the, the 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 mental health problems that stem from all this. Uh, right. And so this this is such a, a serious issue and a very sobering thing. And uh, it's the other side of like we can we can stand back and say you know ha ha at the oh these crazy libs but Mm -hmm. this stuff is real and it's coming for your legal system it's coming for your schools it's coming for your children it's it and uh there we there won't be any escape there's no escape for this guy like almost said it was it's it's a very feeling of hopelessness if this stuff really does take root in our systems yeah and and you have this there's so many victims in this case here you have a mother who's a victim of ideology uh that she's not willing to look into to truly see if this is right for her son and she's been convinced that this is right for her son you have the son here who seemingly was convinced while on a two-month trip away from home that this is his identity at least that's what's speculated here that's what ted believed happened is that christine convinced him of this while they were away so now you have the son who's convinced of this who wants to go through this surgery is going to realize that it's irreversible and is most likely going to fall under that 70% who regrets it. 
And then you have a father here who's been completely stripped of his parental rights and has no say in the matter, which has got to be the most hopeless feeling in the entire world, specifically when it comes to your child. And I want to talk about the broader implication here. The broader problem here is that the judge in this case, Judge Hiramoto, cites not only her own transgender child for the reason behind this judgment, but what she learned in judicial college and in family law classes. This is being being adopted as a standard rule of thumb as it pertains to to children and child custody battles when it comes to transgenderism and gender dysmorphia. And I want to go even deeper into this uh, gender dysphoria and gender dysmorphia problem. So we all know that there's like a there's a catalog of sort of mental illnesses and ways to identify them and to uh, prescribe for them and to uh, give therapy to these different uh, different conditions that you have. Uh, The DSM five is how most people recognize it, how most practitioners recognize it, using it as a reference for these things. Now, I want to read this. After years of lobbying by gender activists, the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, 11th revision, which went into effect in January of this year, eliminated the term gender dysphoria. This standard international textbook of diseases renames the condition gender incongruence, which insinuates that we should affirm what people uh, believe their gender to be and reclassifies it under sexual health. The psychological symptom distress no longer appears, according to most authoritative diagnostic texts used by doctors the world over. Uh, a once mental condition is now just a physical one. So uh, it's just unbelievable to see how far people are going to just have blind affirmation of what young people and adults believe to be their identity instead of looking into actual treatments that's going to help them. And uh, I will go as far as to say this young boy's life will most likely be ruined just statistically. It will be ruined by this. And to see the court of law go in favor of a mother who wants to blindly affirm this at the risk of harming her son is truly, truly devastating. And again, this is one case of many. This Ted Hodaka story is one of many. It is happening not only in California, but in other states here in the United States. And it's going to grow as family law practices and judicial uh, courses and cases start to adopt this ideology. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's a sobering segment. Sorry, guys, but this, but this yep. is real. This is really happening. This is the state of, of the world that we live in. So it's more important than ever now uh, to to fight this stuff and be aware of what's going on and be ready to um, be ready to confront this in, wherever you find it. Yes, indeed. Now we're going to move on to just a couple stories before we get into Throwback Thursday. Today's Throwback Thursday is about love and Valentine's Day. So we're going to bring some joy (laughs) back to you guys because Valentine's Day is coming up. But first, are you guys taking 30 to 45 minutes during your day to apply self-care and to stop yourself from experiencing burnout? No? Prince Harry is. (laughs) and that's his advice to us here's here's the little the smirk the smile from prince harry you might know him because he's married to Meghan markle he also left the royal family uh but he talks about self-care being the first thing that drops away when you are a father and a hard worker and that is why he tries to block out 30 to 45 minute windows every morning just for himself okay one of the kids has gone to school the other one's taking a nap there's a break in our program it's like right it's either for a workout taking the dog for a walk getting out in nature or maybe just meditating 
Now, on its face, I don't see too much problem with this. You are a parent. You work. Whatever you want. You want thirty to forty-five minutes to yourself to stop yourself from experiencing burnout. Whatever, go for it. But what exactly is Prince Harry getting burnout from? Exactly. Do you, do I know? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. He's got all those uh, royal family responsibilities. Oh wait, he left the royal family. Yeah, exactly. No. I know exactly what he's so stressed out about. Tell me. His wife. It's got to be. I mean, it just might be. This woman, have you seen any headlines in the last <laughs> two, three years, however long it's been? It's just a, a, a cloud of uh, grievances. And, you know, he's, he's got a lot to do. He's got to, like, write his notes of uh, all, the, all the ways that he's oppressed uh, so he can go on Oprah and yes. talk about that. And, you know, it's, it's a busy life. It's, it's tough. It's busy, you know, sort of virtue signaling and, yeah. you know, consigning yourself to only having two children because the environment and making that public. And it's, it's really hard to accuse the royal family of racism live on Oprah or at least let your wife do it. There's a lot of there's a lot of tough things we must do in this life. So make sure you guys get your 30 to 45 minute window to just relax and meditate on those things before you do them. And like you said, there there may be wisdom in that, and yes. you know, sure enough, but we the world does not need to hear that from Prince Harry in a big feature in Vanity Fair. Right. It's just read the room. Okay. You're you're a prince. You you've never had to work a day in your life. Whatever you're doing now is completely just whatever you want to do. And uh, you don't need to take a break from that every morning to reset yourself. And okay, and maybe you do, and maybe that's a healthy practice for people, but they don't need to hear it from you. People are actually out there <laughs> at their hard jobs, living their life, hustling, raising kids without uh, a nest egg from their royal family that they can just live off of and they actually have to pay for child care and they they don't do not need to hear that from you and, perfect you know and then and we talked about this a little earlier we talked about even covering this because it's kind of annoying but it's, at at most you know as a member of the royal family you can carry the legacy of the dignity of england and embody that for people and and that doesn't look like this you know like, right th that looks like having class and just showing you know like so much of like when the royal family issues a statement it's always like the uh a case study and brevity and just mm -hmm. being very like official and, and classy and everything. And that's, that's what it should be. It shouldn't be running around on, on magazines saying, telling everyone, you know, here's life advice to manage how hard life is because I really know you don't know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And speaking of extremely privileged people uh, trying to step on their, uh, their soapbox to tell us about how hard it is and, and what we should be doing with our lives. Here's rapper Jim Jones making an upset video from the premium VIP Gucci store where he's trying to spend 30 K and accusing them of racism. <laughs> We've been in Gucci for about an hour, right? And we in Gucci in the VIP. We were in Gucci for like two hours. Right? Since we came in here, having nobody came and showed us no courtesy, no amenities, no nothing. Period. Not even a drink of water. Asked to speak to the manager. Send me a black guy out here to start telling me some bullshit. So they got the black guy racial profiling on black people. What? Asked to speak to a manager bigger than him. Everybody disappeared. Ain't nobody come out yet. I still ain't getting. I still ain't getting no sparkling water. I still ain't get no champagne. I still ain't get nothing. I didn't have a salesperson inside of my VIP suite the whole time I was there. I had to keep screaming for VIP people to help me out. Now everybody don't know where the real manager is. You heard? It's it's tired. I'm tired of this. We spending all this money as entertainers inside these stores. They hire these black people, and these black people are more racist than white people. <sighs> Dude, you got poor service. I get it. You walked into a store. You wanted to spend money. You got poor service. 
I don't think it has anything to do with your race, considering the person who was running the store at the time is black. <laughs> and then you have to come and to justify the lens that you view the world through, which is racism. Yeah. You have to accuse that black person of racism, which apparently the left says it's impossible. Black people can't be racist. But if it's towards you, when you're at the VIP Gucci store, this is racism. Oh, yeah, everything. It goes back to the emoji story. You know, if you look for racism everywhere, you can find it. Like, yep. if he's at a, if he's at an Applebee's, or I mean, he probably eats somewhere more fancy, but yeah, if he's at right. Applebee's and he has a white server and he gets bad service from the white server, oh, he's it's bad service because he's racist. Yep. But now he's saying he's getting bad service at Gucci from the black people, and he's right. saying that's racist. So if you have a black server at the Applebee's, now that's racist too. It's like everything. There's never a situation in which no racism is occurring, right. and that's just we're hearing that all in all the airwaves on NPR. It's in your kids' uh, school curriculum. It's it's just blanketing social media in Hollywood. It's all about race. It's all about race. It's all about race. Yeah. So what do you expect? I didn't get sparkling water or champagne. Racism. I didn't get a manager to come and help me spend my $30,000 at the Gucci store. Racism. While you're wearing thousands and thousands of dollars of chains around your neck, you're a famous entertainer and people know exactly who you are. Racism. Everything. You know how many people get bad service? You know how often I get bad service? You know how often Taylor gets bad service? <laughs> if we cried racism every single time, oh my gosh, we'd be making lots of money. I'd be writing books. I'd be the next Patrice Cullors. I'd be founding, I don't know, Biracial Lives Matter. <laughs> That's what I'd be doing. It's just so crazy that we consign everything to racism and we really need to get over that narrative. Luckily, nobody really bit on this Jim Jones video. People were commenting, really, you're crying racism from a Gucci store? And I'm so glad to see that that there is some semblance of sanity within our population. Eventually, yeah. I guess, when you get to an extreme enough example. Right. But look, he could, he, he could should just go to Chick-fil-A after this whole ordeal because he's going to get great service from people who say, my pleasure. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is what we had for lunch today. That is what we Shout had for lunch Chick today. Shout outs to Chick-fil-A. Okay, guys, now we're going to get into our fun segment. We gave you a lot of, lot, a little bit of sadness today. Our throwback Thursday. Valentine's Day is around the corner. You guys know I love, love. It's in four days. So I want to give you guys some Valentine's Day background. Do you know where this holiday comes from? Do you know why we celebrate it? What do you know about Valentine's Day? Let's get into it and maybe you will learn something today. So, uh, it comes from, really, the name Valentine's Day comes from the St. Valentine. And it's speculated who really was the Valentine that launched uh, St. Uh, Valentine's Day. And they're not quite sure. They believe that St. Valentine really wasn't just one person. And there are actually two stories of a Valentine. So there's one name, man named Valentine who defied a ban on marriage that was put in place by Emperor Claudius II. He was actually a priest that was going behind the back of the emperor to marry young couples who were in love. And it's speculated that that's where we get the term Valentine's Day. But there was also another man by the name of Valentine arrested for helping Christians escape from Rome in prison. And he apparently wrote the first Valentine from prison, signing from your Valentine. So is it the man who secretly married people uh, against the emperor's ruling, which has to do with love? Or is it the man who wrote the letter from your Valentine from prison? We don't know. Next, in 
the 1300s, it officially became a holiday associated with love. So for a long time, uh, they celebrated uh, St. Valentine's Day and, and spoke about it, but it had nothing to do with love. It was actually at the end of the uh, the 5th century that Roman Pope uh, Galatius officially declared the date of February 14th, St. Valentine's Day. But it wasn't until centuries later that actually the French and English uh, made Valentine's Day associated with love. Why? Because they believed that birds started their mating season specifically on the day of February 14th. And that uh, simulated some form of love and was symbolic of love. So that's when Valentine's Day became love associated. That's why I put little doves on your (laughs) on the little presentation for you. Now, what about Cupid? What about baby Cupid? Where did he come from? So Cupid actually has his roots in Greek mythology. So there used to be a Greek god of love and his name was Eros. And this was back in uh, 700 BC before Christ. So Eros, Eros was known as this wonderfully handsome Grecian man who had this intimidating ability to just make people fall in love that he could use at any time he wanted. That was his power. And in the fourth century BCE, the Romans actually re made a reiteration of Eros that was actually a little cute little baby boy, a little cherub, if you will, with his bow and arrow named Cupid. And Cupid could shoot the bow and arrow and whoever he hit would fall in love at, at his discretion. And then the 19th century, centuries and centuries later, uh, Cupid gets adopted as a symbol of love for Valentine's Day because of his fantastic power to make couples and to be a matchmaker. Next. Now, the very first Valentine was sent in the 15th century. We're jumping all over the place. We're in 700 BC. We're in 500 BCE. We're in 1300, the 1300s. Now we're in the 15th century. So the 1400s. This is when the first Valentine was sent. And this is actually a very kind of cute story. So there was a French medieval duke by the name of Charles who was placed in prison at the ripe age of 21 years old in the Tower of London. While in the Tower of London, he wrote a letter to his beloved and said, I am already sick of love, my very gentle Valentine. How sweet is that? And you can actually go and look up uh, his entire letter that he wrote to this young woman in 1415. Uh, And this was his wife at the time. So that's the first record that we have of an actual Valentine being sent. And it's very interesting because we have uh, Valentine who signed in prison that they speculate from your Valentine. And now we have Charles in 1415 who signed very similarly, my very gentle Valentine. Next. Now, here's where we get into actual Valentine's Day traditions of sending the cards, giving the candy and all that fun stuff. It wasn't until the 1840s that we got mass produced Valentines. And it's actually thanks to a woman named Esther A. Howland. So she decided to start making cards and handwritten letters that she would sell to people who were lovers or wanted to give them to their friends during this time. Uh, And she mass produced these Valentine's Day cards in the U.S. And they labeled her the mother of the American Valentine. And to the right on this, if you want to look, is what her cards look like. So very, very intricate cards with with lace and dye. And she would draw these paintings and put pictures of, of young friends and young lovers and then sell these cards. So very, very cute. Hallmark has nothing on that. Hallmark has got nothing on Esther A. Howland. She she launched Hallmark's career. She she. 
She walked so Hallmark could run. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And now we'll get into another Valentine's Day tradition, which is those candy hearts with the messages on them. I think these are so gross. They taste. I love them. You love them. I do. I, I actually quite enjoy them. I feel like you either love them or you hate them. Yeah. But yeah, I'm I'm a disliker of these. So, but let me give you the backstory here. In 1866, uh, these got actual messages printed on them, but that's this is not what they were initially designed for. So a man by the name of Oliver Chase, who was a pharmacist, created a sort of press, uh, a candy press, which it wasn't a candy press at the time. He actually used it to make medical lozenges for people. And he realized that with this invention that he could create candies. So he shifted from creating these medical lozenges to creating candies. And he actually created the company Neko, which you guys all know from those Neko waivers that you can buy in virtually any store, typically like your your Hobby Lobbies or your gas stations, things like that. So he created the Neko company and Neko wafers. And then his brother, Daniel Chase came along and actually started writing sentimental messages on the Neko sweethearts. Now, you'll see the ones that are that come out now that say like you're a cutie or be mine. This is the very short messages, but they actually used to be much larger and have much longer messages. One a couple examples here. Married in white, you have chosen right. Used to be written on these. I can't imagine how big <laughs> how big the wafers had to be to write this. Another one is how sh- uh, how long shall I have to wait? Please be considerate. <laughs> wow. That one's kind of cute. That's, I, that seems kind of aggressive. How long shall I have to wait? How long shall I have to wait for you? Please be considerate. I mean, the white one today would be problematic as well. Yes. Mar- why you got to be married in white? Why you got to be married in white? And why are you saying I've chosen right mm. by being married in white? Racist. We, there's so many things to make offensive. So yeah, how, how long shall I have to wait? Please be considerate. And last slide here. Today, Americans spend a lot on love. Uh, February 14th is one of my favorite holidays. According to the National Retail Foundation, though, Americans spend over $20 billion on Valentine's Day gifts. In 2019... And we're expected to spend $27.4 billion in 2021 or in 2020. Americans send 145 million Valentine's Day cards every single year. And that's where Hallmark gets their biggest boost. So everything has to get so commercialized. It's, it's true. Capitalism for you. What can it's you do? true. But here's what I say. A lot of people take qualms with Valentine's Day and they say it's a fake holiday. That's just for consumerism and capitalism <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, if you're going to spend money, at least you're spending it on love. You know, if we're going to spend $27.4 billion, at least it's spent on communicating to other people that we love them through candies and goodies and cards and things like that. I think there's much worse ways that we could be spending our money in this country. Yeah, don't I know it after uh, paying for a wedding engagement ring and uh, all the above this past year. Right. That'll put you out way more than Valentine's Day. Yeah. So, but it's love. It's priceless. But it's love. Love is priceless, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) So that's your Throwback Thursday. I hope you learned something about Valentine's Day today. Maybe it's origins. Maybe how much money we spend on it. Maybe the little uh, Necco wafers, where those come from. And the two brothers who created them from medical lozenges. (laughs) 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 Yummy. How far we've come. Oh, Uh, how far we've come. Did you in school, like, your mom would get, like, the little set of uh, Valentine's and you could write messages on them and give them to all your classmates and there's candy with them. Mm -hmm. They still do that these days? I don't know if they still do that these days. Uh, they did them in my days. I know last year, I remember I saw stuff about how they canceled it because of COVID. Oh, 
That's so sad. I know. I remember being so excited as a kid to like hand out my little Valentine's. Did you ever like write a special Valentine? Mm, (laughs) Did you ever do that in school? Not on the record. (laughs) Not on the record. His wife's watching. We can't talk about (laughs) third grade. Can't talk about your third grade crushes. Valentine (laughs) exchanges. Gave her the Minnie Mouse one. But yeah, you used to get so excited and then you'd be like, oh, there's this boy that I have a crush on like kindergarten. You're like, I wonder if he wrote a special note on my (laughs) Valentine or not. And they never do (laughs) because boys don't care about that. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, but they're great memories, and I love the, yeah. that. Looking back and all those little gift exchanges, I hope they still do that these days. I hope that's they the do. part I don't mind. I'm going to make my kids bring Valentine's yeah, Day to their you school. You will. <laughs> we will go shopping, and you will pick out your favorite Transformers or Star Wars Valentines, and absolutely, write notes to your absolutely, guys. Uh, let us know in the comments down below once the stream ends. What are you guys doing for your Valentine's Day? Are you are you cuffed up? Are you coupled up or are you a single Pringle who's either not ready or ready to mingle? Put that down below on your, in the comments. Let us know what your Valentine's Day plans are. Do you have any uh, Valentine's Day plans that are not secretive, Taylor? Um, so funny enough, my wife is one of those people who thinks it's a, kind of like a lame fake holiday. Oh. And if you have a, a gesture of love, that should come spontaneously, not because there's a dedicated day to it. I you kind of like don't get credit for it. Right, right. So I'm in the weird position of like, well, I can't not do something for mm-hmm. Valentine's Day for her, but but not too big. She, I also like can't do just the generic thing, so I have to do some like ha ha. Um, I have plans. I don't want to spoil them because she does watch the show yes we are taking a weekend trip I next weekend to santa barbara so that's Aww. kind of more valentine's celebration my parents are in town visiting us this weekend so we won't really be able to do much on right. valentine's side this weekend but right anyways that's kind of our plan so. well that's very very how about you nice uh my valentine is will not be in town so i will be hanging out with my roommate and her friends for this valentine's day but we sort of already celebrated valentine's day Almost so. Valentine's in the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's actually Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. He's everyone's Valentine's I'm day. actually I'm actually dating Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, guys, thank you so much for watching. Again, let us know what your Valentine's Day plans are down below. And we'll be back tomorrow for Fun Friday. We'll have a fun segment all planned out for you guys at 2.30 Pacific, 5.30 Eastern. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you guys tomorrow and subscribe to Will and Amla live on YouTube. Bye, guys.